from Flourish DX School, this is the Flourishing at School podcast. With mental health becoming a global priority, we are your partner for creating schools where students, teachers and school leaders feel good and function well, becoming the best versions of themselves and contributing to a flourishing world. Welcome to the Flourishing at School podcast. I'm Tamara Lechner. Each week, my co-host, Jason Van Shee, and I bring you the best practitioners, academics, and everything in between in order to inform best practice in whole school mental health. Jason, I think we are both back home recording after a whirlwind tour last week. What have you been doing to take care of your well-being since you got home? Uh, well, I've been eating healthy again. <laughs> so I was in Sydney all last week. And uh, as I do when I travel, it's usually uh, eating whatever's convenient. And then I try and make up for it when I when I get back. Uh, but also just spending time with the family. Um, so, you know, there's always something on with the family, um, you know, netball, basketball, that sort of thing. So uh, a bit of time catching up and chats in the car to and from all these different events. Yeah, those those family relationships do fill your cup, don't they? Absolutely. Yeah. We're gathering tomorrow? our family back to Victoria. Even though we live in Canada, we celebrate American Thanksgiving. So all of the kids have American Thanksgiving off, and that's going to fill my cup when I get everybody back home. So I'm looking forward to that. Nice one. I'm going to ask our guest the same question once I introduce him. So I am delighted that we have Matthew Savage with us today. Now, Matthew is a LinkedIn friend and I've never had a pure online friend before. So I saw a post that Matthew made about data and well-being in education and I had to invite him to join us. He's an educator and a school leader. He's been a principal in the UK and taught internationally for more than 25 years. And he's now a well-known consultant and trainer, and he's created a really cool thing called the Mona Lisa Effect that I'm going to let him explain about. And he hosts his own podcast, which I was listening to today, and it's brilliant. And he is co-hosting Thrive 2023, which is the well-being conference for international schools. And if you're listening out there, I hope you will join Matthew and I there. So Matthew, welcome to the Flourishing at school podcast. And the first thing I want to ask you is what have you been doing to take care of your well-being lately? Thanks so much, Tamara. And thank you very much for having me. Um, <clears throat> the truth is, like Jason, I've not been doing very well at uh, focusing on my well-being because I'm traveling at the moment. So when I'm traveling, I eat whatever is convenient. Um, <clears throat> I work basically every hour that's available. And I don't necessarily feel that great as a result of it. So I'm looking forward also to be getting uh, home towards the end of this month, uh, back to my wonderful wife and my atypical dog on the lovely Isle of Skye, bathing myself in some uh, some of nature's awe. And I guess uh, being away from the world again when I'm there, just not feeling that pressure to perform the whole time. I think the nature of my work is I'm trying to get new clients, I'm trying to impress the clients I've got, and it's that whole kind of uh, ocean of performativity in which I'm having to swim. So yeah, I'm looking forward to getting back and focusing on my well-being rather than on others for a bit. Terrific. Um, Matthew, so great to have you on. Um, I'm wondering for our listeners who aren't aware of your work, if maybe you could describe in just a few minutes um, your career to date. Absolutely, Jason. Um, so as Tamara suggested, I've been in education for 25 years. 
Um, half of that was in the UK and half internationally. And I've been a, in senior leadership since 2004. Um, when I moved abroad in 2010, um, our first posting was in Vienna, in Austria, um, and then over to Brunei Dar es Salaam and then Bangkok, and then finally in Amman in Jordan, where I was the principal of an all-through international school there that served the NGO and diplomatic communities in Amman, in Amman and beyond. Uh, whilst I was there, I also tried to consolidate um, what it meant to me to be a leader and to be an educator and develop sort of a brand, if you like, surrounding what Tamara rightly called the Mona Lisa effect. So this is based around the idea that just like the Mona Lisa's eyes look at you wherever you are in her room. So I think our schools should be seeing um, every single child for who they are within the rooms in which we teach them. Uh, I also, also developed um, this notion of a, a well-being first school, um, a school in which every decision everybody makes is rooted firmly in well-being. So like we're faced with choices, right? Do I do A or do I do B? Often, as I say to my colleagues, the right thing is the right thing, right? And if we follow a well-being first agenda, then we will make the choice which foregrounds and centers the well-being of those with whom we work. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, just clearing my throat a little bit there. In 2020, I had two mini strokes and I was repatriated in the midst of a military lockdown in Amman to the UK. And when I started to recover, uh, although I'm still in a wheelchair now, I started to recover in most ways. And I began my consultancy around the Mona Lisa effect, around using data for good rather than for ill, um, around diversity, equity, inclusion and justice and around well-being. And I've been so fortunate to work with thousands of educators across um, over hundreds of schools uh, in over 60 countries. Um, and it's all culminating, as Tamara said, in a conference that I'm co-organizing with Dr. Sadie Hollins and Professor Farid Lavers from the University of Leuven in Leuven in Belgium in March next year, which is the first, I believe, well-being first conference for international schools. So that's a little bit about me, where I've come from, where I am and where I'm going. Yeah, great to hear um, another person who's a fan of data, Matthew. A um, bit of a data geek myself, so looking forward to the conversation. And uh, yeah, we'll definitely want to ask a few more questions in a moment uh, about your Thrive uh, First co uh, Thrive Conference. Um, is Thrive First or Thrive? No, it's Wellbeing First, but it's called the Thrive Conference, right? Yeah, Thrive schools. 2023. Yeah. Thrive 2023. Hopefully there'll be a Thrive 2024 and 5 and 6 and 7, but for now it's the first one. Nice. So I want to unpack a little bit. You talked about where every child can be seen, be heard, be known and belong. So when you work with schools and, and you're thinking of well-being first, can you tell us what this work actually looks like? How do, how do you switch from academics first to every child being seen and heard and known and belonging? It's a really good question. I was meeting with a group of parents um, in Singapore this week, and my brief, my, my challenge for that meeting was to explore the balance between well-being and academics, because the perception was that the parent community, certainly internationally, uh, is very much focused on academics. And therefore, if we were to pursue a well-being first agenda, is there a dissonance with what our paying parents want? And the main point I put across to those parents is that there isn't a choice, right? <laughs> um, it's not that we choose one or the other, although I think it is more complicated than that. 
we can pursue academics first. And yep, sure, absolutely, kids can get extraordinary outcomes. But if we pursue academics first, the likelihood is the well-being is going to suffer and suffer significantly in many cases. If we pursue well-being first, I have not seen any instance in which the academics and the outcomes don't become much better, right? So I suppose, in essence, um, I don't think we need to make a choice between one or the other. We just need to make a choice about which of the two we put first. And the whole be seen, be heard, be, be seen, be heard, be known, belong um, kind of mission of my work on the Mona Lisa effect, uh, the be seen, it's about visibility and genuinely genuine visibility for uh, the young people in our schools, right? Visibility of who they actually are. The be heard bit is about student voice, palpable, authentic student voice. The, the be known bit is about the data. How do we use data to ensure that we are seeing uh, the, the true authentic child? And then the belong. I think if we see, hear, and know our children, they're more likely to belong. If they belong, they're going to thrive. If they thrive, they're going to get those academic outcomes that we tell ourselves our parents want above all else. So that's kind of how it ties together. You're definitely preaching to the choir here. Jason <laughs> and I had Dana Kerford as a guest last week, and she's a friendship expert, and she put it really nicely when she said if students don't have their well-being their friendships their family life those things right they're not available to learn and and so it's not an either or it's your brain is not primed for learning if you are worried about something that's gone on at recess with a friend or you're worried about something that's at home and and so i think you are absolutely right and i know jason and i both were connected to Geelong Grammar, where they talk about it as placing well-being at the heart of education. Again, it doesn't mean that we're not incredibly focused on academic outcomes. In fact, those achievements only improve when you're feeling good, you function well. It, it is. It's that readiness to learn. Um, I think, you know, I know Maslow's um, ideas are, are old, but I don't think they're tired. And if a child doesn't have that physiological well-being, that's that safety, that love and belonging, then my view, they're not ready to learn in the first place. So if we come to well-being after we've embarked on the learning journey, I think we're getting it the wrong way around. Yeah, we, we see the same thing in organisations where there's a big drive for productivity and people work more and more hours without actually thinking, well, if we worked in a more sustainable way, we might actually get a better result. It's not about, you know, just going through the motions. We've got to set ourselves up for success, right? And it's the same in the classroom, as you're saying. Absolutely. Totally agree. Yeah. So um, can you tell us uh, why you and your colleagues came up with the Thrive Conference and what registrants might expect from it? I think we, Sadie Ferret and I found... Uh, such enormous overlap in the work we happen to be doing in other spheres. So I'd been writing for Sadie's Wellbeing in International Schools magazine, um, all four editions. Um, and so Sadie and I kind of got to know each other that way, another LinkedIn friend tomorrow. Um, and then Farah, I'd, I'd been a, a fan of Farah for the last 10 years when I first discovered his uh, scales for wellbeing and involvement, the Leuven scales. Um, and recently I was working with a guy called Ian Plant um, in a school called uh, Gems Founders in Dubai. 
And Ian and I were looking at the Levin scales and whether we could find a way to roll the Levin scales, which are, uh, I suppose, ostensibly for early years, right up through, um, you know, to, to secondary, to high school and even into staff. So he just happened to reach out to Ferrer. Um, his wife happens to be Belgian. He reached out to Ferrer saying, I'm here in Belgium over the summer. You want to meet up? And Ferrer said yes. And on the back of that has come uh, collaboration between Ferrer and Ian's school with me supporting. And then I just one day a message Sadie and Ferrer and said, I've had this idea. I think too often our conferences for international school educators have well-being as some sort of adjunct or, or add-on. Um, wouldn't it be cool if we had a conference that was entirely about student and staff well-being? Um, and on the back of that, we've been working for the last two months to bring this uh, off the ground. Um, in terms of what registrants could get from it, um, they'll get two days of really provocative, disruptive learning that centres the well-being of everyone in our school community and a chance to engage with others from across the world on what really makes well-being matter and how we can put it first in our schools. So I think it'll be a really exciting event. Yeah, it sounds it. And like you say, it is, it is filling a gap. Um, and, and nice to see the focus on international schools as well. Often we see these sort of things being done in school districts um, or, um, you know, it doesn't have the focus on international schools, which we know have their own challenges, right? They're a different community, very transient. Um, yeah, it'd be interesting, I think, the sort of things that you can unpack in a, in a conference focused on that audience. I hope so. And I think in Australia, you know, in many ways, you're ahead of the pack in terms of uh, best well-being practice and, and positive education, etc. In the international sector, as you say, a really transient community in many respects, but also increasingly the opposite. So local kids whose parents have saved up to put them into international schools alongside their international peers. And so you have very complex shifting dynamics there. Um, and I think there is a lot of pressure there's a lot of pressure from the parent body. There's a lot of pressure from uh, boards and owners and governors and groups. Um, and somehow we need to be able to sift through that and um, and find the kind of well-being light at the end of that sort of performativity uh, tunnel, I suppose. Yeah, for sure. That's a, a great visual of that, that light at the end of the tunnel. And I think one other difference that I see with international schools um, versus some of the other places that I've worked and that Jason has worked, uh, is the level of requirement for diversity, equity, inclusion work, because you're gathering so many cultures from so many different backgrounds. And well-being work goes directly hand in hand. Um, often I'll go into a school facilitating a well-being training and they'll say, oh, well, we're doing this this year and next year we're going to do uh, DEI work or Jedi work, whatever they call it in their region. Um, and it's almost like they think one is done and then the next one happens. And I'm always reminding them, actually, they're kind of the same thing. When you're, when you're learning about your well-being, you're understanding how it connects outwardly to other people and you're increasing that empathy. And, and so I think when I heard your podcast and you were talking to GEMS, I don't know if this is the same GEMS school, but I was listening to an episode yeah. and one of the questions you asked them that I loved was a discussion about street versus sheet data. Uh, and I wondered if you might tell our listeners a little bit about that, because I thought it was a really interesting nuance. Absolutely. And before I do, just to reinforce what you just said there about how you can't 
uh, kind of distinguish or, or disentangle uh, these different forces in our schools. You know, when I first started out as a consultant, I thought people would either want to work with me on my data work, or they'd want to work with me on my well-being work, or they'd want to work with me on my DEIJ work. And what I learned pretty quickly is that all three are inextricably linked, and you cannot have the one without the other, right? So, um, you know, you cannot have well-being without DEIJ and vice versa. But what I've learned about data, and a lot of that's come recently through my reading of Sophia and Duggan's Street Data, an extraordinary book that's just shifting my thinking in such exciting ways, is that for too long, I think we focused exclusively on that sheet, the, the, the worksheet, the spreadsheet, you know, um, looking at the numbers and how the numbers play out and how we can manipulate the numbers and challenge ourselves with the numbers, etc. And, you know, I love numbers and I love spreadsheets. Yeah. And I, and I think that sort of quantitative data is really powerful and really valid for us. But what Sophia and Dagen argue, uh, and this is also uh, some of the work of Nora Bateson from the Bateson Institute and her work on warm data. What Sophia Duggan and Bateson would argue is that we've got to get down to the street. We've got to engage ethnographically with the authentic stories of the people with whom we're working, right? And sure, if I've got, you know, one of the schools I work with has almost 4,000 kids, another of the schools I've started to work with, the leader of which is about 10,000 kids, right? So if you've got lots of kids in your school, then you've got to have those numbers because those numbers are, I talk about data as a revolutionary act, a, a, a kindness act, a moral act. And we've got to use those numbers to do what Sophia and Duggan would say is choose the margins, right? For too long, we've been centering our work in schools around the mass, right? If we can choose the margins and focus on making learning and well-being for the margins, be those marginalized groups by virtue of their race, by virtue of their, their faith, by virtue of their gender identity or their sexuality or their age or whatever else. If we choose the margins and make life better for them, then everybody wins, right? So for me, that was the one of the most powerful things that came out of street data, is this idea of us uh, joining the kids ultimately on their turf engaging with them authentically, listening to them authentically, and intentionally trying to find out what is their story. Because once we find out what is their living, beating story, this, this glorious cocktail, this mess of synapses and hormones and so much else besides, if we engage with that story, then we really are going to see them and hear them and know them, right? And then from that, uh, follows true personalization and, uh, you know, a richer, happier school. That makes such sense to me. I have um, a son who is dyslexic and the number of parents I have at my school who will say, man, I wish my kid was on an IEP. Look at all the attention that your son gets. And every year he's passed on to the next grade. All the teachers are prepared for him. And I think that's where we're going with this type of personalization, right? That we're going to have this information that is in in movement. So it's it's not static, it's changing. But as you pass a student along, you've got all this data about what works well for them, what their strengths are. And I know Jason and I, uh, in the work that we do together, look a lot at making sure students know what their strengths are and teachers see those character strengths and can point them out and ask the students to use them to help with their well-being and to help build that well-being. 
Uh, and so I think what you're saying about that street that I know you because one of my fears is always that person on the edge of the data kind of just gets forgotten about. And I happen to have four kids on the edge of data. I was a kid on the edge of data that I'd never fit into the norms and school is designed for those kids in the middle, right? So I love that idea of really looking from the street at the individual and, and seeing them. And it's to do with intentionality, isn't it? You know, we need intentionally to look to those margins. Um, and that's when the magic really happens, I think. Yeah, I've, I've had some, um, uh, I wouldn't say heated debates, but debates with some practitioners who are saying, you know, it's not great to measure down to an individual level when it comes to their well-being and, you know, what's contributing to their well-being. Um, but I agree with you. When you look at the masses and you kind of design for the masses, you miss out on a lot of those people on the margins. Um, I mean, I think we've made the mistake when it comes to academia, right, in that we tend to, um, you know, try and teach kids the same way. It's like scalable, right, you know, but we know they have different learning styles. And ideally, if you really wanted to provide the best education, you would provide that, you know, IEP for every single student, right? Like, let's go, what, what's the best way that this student is going to learn? And I think the same goes for wellbeing. We can't just do cohort level kind of analyses and interventions and expect every student is going to have the same benefit. You know, I think there is benefit for understanding, like you say, those kids in the margins and um, even at an individual level, like what should they be doing as their own kind of wellbeing plan? Yeah, and I think individual and, and cohort and, and school level work also do overlap. Right. So we've got to focus on the individual. Absolutely. And I would agree with that. And I'd happily enter into a heated debate with anyone else myself on that. But I think some of the biggest change happens when we also look at things on a school level. And this is the exciting work that I've got from Jim Ellis um, from ECIS um, on what he calls curb cuts and spikes and taking a design lens onto access. So, for example, if, if I identify there's a particular group of students on the margins in my school, and I figure out a curb cut, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a disabled wheelchair user myself. And so that curb cut from the uh, sidewalk to the street is really, really important for me. And a curb cut is something that creates access for one group, but from which literally everybody else benefits as well, right? Because who doesn't prefer walking down a slope? And so if we can use our street data to identify who is at the margins and what curb cuts we could implement to benefit and to improve the lives of those people at the margins. Then once we've implemented that curb cut, literally everyone else is going to benefit from that curb cut as, curb cut as well. So it's about, I suppose, the, the big difference is it's about moving from accommodation of those individual needs towards adaptation to those individual needs. And I think that's where something really powerful starts to take place. Yeah, that's um, something that we see a lot. Uh, I, I work in a software company, right? And it's uh, it's about accessibility design. Um, and like you say, you make it accessible for one group of users and it actually can improve the um, experience for a multitude of users that you didn't even know would benefit potentially. Yeah, totally. I totally agree. Yeah. So um, you talked a little bit about your story. Um uh, at the beginning of this podcast, but how specifically, Matthew, I'm interested, do you bring your story into your work within classrooms? 
I was talking to an international school parent, and there's another group I think is often uh, underrepresented, but I was talking to an international school parent recently about my family. And I said that in my family, I have three people of color, three people of mixed uh, heritage and ethnicity. I have um, two trans people. I have one person who's bisexual, another person who's gay. I have someone who's perimenopausal. Um, I have someone who's autistic. I have someone um, who's exploring a diagnosis of ADHD. And I have someone in a wheelchair. And then the person said to me, how many people in your family, right? Uh, and I said, and there are four of us. Because what strikes me is that our intersectional us, as I like to call it, shows quite how intersectional many of our identities and our lives are. And I've been enriched by all of those experiences. So when my eldest child was much younger, and when she got the diagnosis uh, of autism, uh, we found that uh, both liberating and difficult. Liberating, because finally we had this signpost that would enable us and others to be able to see, hear, and, and know her. But um, it was quite difficult because the rest of the education system didn't really seem to get it. And so um, my daughter had a really tough time in those early years. And I've learned from that. And I, I forced myself then to join her and learn about autism in the mainstream classroom. Then I went on to deliver training on autism in the mainstream classroom. And it's been the same since my youngest child came out as trans back in 2016. I realized I was so far behind and the rest of the world was even further behind. So what I forced myself to do was to join him on his margin to learn and educate myself about the trans experience, after which I've gone on to lead training uh, for schools across the world on trans inclusivity. And since losing the, abil the ability to walk entirely about a year ago, I've really started to reflect probably more than daily, probably minutely on the reality of navigating an ableist world on wheels rather than legs. And as a result of that, I've tried to explore more and more about my community um, and the battles it's fought over the years. And on the back of which, I'm giving a keynote to a major international education conference uh, next February, specifically rooted in my experience of physical disability. So I think what I'm trying to say is that we've learned from and I've learned from our own stories. And it's through sharing those stories with others that I bring them onto the journey that I'm on and help them to look at those people on the margins in their own communities. Yeah, that um, storytelling and, and coming from a lived experience, right, is uh, it can be so powerful, um, particularly if you can use it in the right way. And, you know, we've um, on our other podcast spoken to another person who had a workplace accident and has ended up in a wheelchair now for the rest of his life. And, you know, just that story of of his experience in that and then afterwards his mental health challenges and you know it's it's that message can be very powerful just to create that extra bit of empathy i guess for those individuals who maybe aren't like typical um you know or meet that kind of average uh that we see we all love stories don't we we, we we've all loved stories since we were um very very little indeed uh, and i think there is so much noise out there um, blocking us from seeing people on the margins. So much uh, kind of misinformation, so much ignorance, so much hatred, uh, that it's through the sharing of stories that we bring people in. It's 
through the sharing of stories that we engage on the level of love, really, rather than on the level of hatred. So, yeah, I agree. Story sharing and storytelling um, makes it all worthwhile. I am so grateful that you shared all of that with us. Um, I have many similar experiences. So my large family would sound a lot like yours, including autism and dyslexia and connection to transgender health and uh, lots of other things as well. And and so I think one of the things that this reminds me of, because many teachers to students are that person at the front of the class and students don't see teachers as someone who goes home and has a family and, and has other things in their life. It, it's like if you see your teacher outside of school, it blows your mind that they, they live outside of the classroom. And I know when I've worked with teachers, they have a real challenge deciding how much of their personal life is okay to disclose to their students, um, where they should draw that line. And I think you've just painted a really beautiful picture of how to do that well. And so what I wanna ask you, because you've had experience going into so many classrooms, um, and obviously you've gotten this right because you're having great success working with international schools. What's an example that comes to mind if I ask you something that you tried that worked really well uh, going into schools and, and working with them on a consulting basis? Well, I think I could also say things that didn't <laughs> go That'll well. be the next question. But... Jason will get to that. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we like um... lessons learned and successes. Um, well, I suppose, first and foremost, the work I'm doing with schools on well-being that's, that works is around measurement. Because the question I ask uh, almost epist epistemologically is, how do you know? Because so many teachers think they know, as if human beings are simple and easy to know. <laughs> and uh, my first question, I suppose, I ask lots of schools is, well, how do you know then? And that's where talk of measurement of well-being, just as much as we've always measured attainment, comes in, uh, comes to the fore of everything, I suppose. Um, but the, the big thing I also see making a difference in schools is even if schools internationally aren't able to meet that ISCA, the International School Council Association, the ISCA ratio of uh, one a trained, licensed, experienced counsellor for every 250 kids, even if most schools I work with are quite a long way away from that, what can they do to mitigate against that in the form of maybe having a local trainee counsellor who can do a lot of the, the group work and that triage in terms of training staff in mental health first aid? So there's, again, there's a triage level uh, at which uh, lots of kids can then access that support in terms of training peer helpers and peer counsellors so that the children themselves are able to be their, each other's support in terms of having well-being spaces in the school where staff or students can go to really just be, have a cocoon in which they can feel truly safe. So I suppose in summary, yes, ideally we have all the counsellors we need, but if we're not going to get there or get there yet, firstly, we've got to measure well-being. But secondly, we've got to make sure that we do other steps to fill that capacity. Because it seems to me, as long as we may, you may agree with this, working in well-being measurement yourself, but as soon as we measure well-being, we're going to find out some issues, right? And if we aren't able to meet those issues and actually to support those issues, I think we're guilty of having provided hope. Because if I survey and measure well-being and I cannot support the well-being that I discover, 
then I've offered hope and I've done so cruelly because I cannot actually follow through. So yeah, it's about measurement and balancing that with out with capacity and making sure that if we can't get pure capacity, let's get it in a um, more mitigating way. Yeah, um, I think that's really important for people who are planning on measuring to, to think about. Like you have to go into measurement actually planning on doing something with the data. Um, there's a lot of um, schools and workplaces I see that seem to collect data for data's sake. And the first maybe time, I think people learn this very quickly, the first time that maybe there's a bit of hope that things could be better, things could be different. But after, uh, you know, nothing happens for six months following the survey, the data collection, and then they ask you to complete another survey, that's when you get helplessness going, well, this isn't, this isn't worth it. You know, and it's soul-destroying, I think, for people going, oh, I participated. They, they, they seemed interested. They gave me that hope. <laughs> Nothing happened. <laughs> so I'm not going to participate this time. So, um, yes, uh, I think that, that's really important for people to, to recognise. Uh, we've got to get it right first time, I think, as mm-hmm. well. Otherwise, we'll never get them back. If we survey and they trust us and they complete it and then we don't get it right, they're never, not, never going to be honest in the future, are they? Exactly. And you hear so much about this uh, survey fatigue, right? You know, survey fatigue. Mm. It's not that the surveys are called it causing fatigue. It's like how the surveys are used and then actioned, yeah. uh, the totally. data is actioned. Yeah. If you're asking someone who's already depleted to do something and then you're not being responsive to what they've told you, you're making it worse, not better. And I know when we talked to one of our guests, Lisa Bayless, she said that almost every school she worked with wanted this for the students. And if you marketed it for the students and sold it as a solution for the students, you could get through the door. But as soon as you started talking about teachers' mental health and teachers' well-being, the, the leaders weren't terribly interested. And it's part of our challenge and part of our journey to make sure everybody understands that you cannot help students to become mentally healthy, to understand their own regulation of emotions and being able to manage the obstacles that are going to come if they don't have teachers who are mentally healthy. If, if the teachers are suffering, if the teachers are burnt out, there is a direct downstream effect. And, and so it's, it is a real balance of figuring out how do we get into the school and get everybody on board. And especially that can go wrong if you measure and do nothing. Then the staff, I know when we have schools that say, you know, we're not going to do this again because nobody used it. It's like, well, nobody used it because you measured and you found out that everybody was burnt out and then you did nothing. And it does, that leads to a cycle of hopelessness. Yeah, I, I would agree. And it's interesting what you say about staff well-being. I, I say a lot to schools um, at the moment that there is no student well-being without staff well-being. And so we have to, one of one of the um, threads or themes of the Thrive Conference is staff well-being as well, because if I'm not okay, I can't help you to be okay, right? Uh, and I think that's something we've missed. I also think we've missed um, leader well-being, you know? I think for too long, it's only in recent sort of a year or two it's only since the pandemic i think that boards in international schools have started to focus on the well-being of their leaders of their principals right so it really isn't something that we can only achieve for one group because if we only achieve it for one group we're not really achieving it for anybody yes and you're right around the leaders i know that the uk has um 
really just started to put some focus in that direction. And ECIS has jumped on board and they're going to be hosting um, a training for leaders that will be about, it'll start with an intense um, retreat type weekend, but go on to help leaders plan over eight months. Okay, what is this going to look like long-term rolled out in your school? And that's something that my colleague, Dr. Elka Paul, and I have been working on helping ECIS get something into place because we know that leadership plays such a big role and often the leaders tip to vertical and want to protect their teachers. And so they take too much of the burden and they don't have any outlet. They are suffering in their, their districts based with whatever's going on in politics. And that is all outside of their control. And we do see leaders being more burnt out than ever. Yeah, and I, I think um, certainly in my years as an international school leader and uh, most recently as a principal, my well-being was never anyone else's interest but my own. And to be honest, I wasn't that interested in it myself. So literally nobody was looking out for me and I was absorbing all of that that burden, that pressure and thinking that somehow I could change and save the world. And as I did that, my mental health was uh, deteriorating more and more rapidly. In the end, manifested in a stroke, right? Because in the end, it's going to come out somewhere. But if only uh, my sector and my school had understood principal well-being better, then maybe some of the other things wouldn't have followed on from it. So, yeah, leadership well-being really important, but we can't focus on leadership well-being if we're not going to focus also on staff well-being, and we can't do that if we're not focusing on student well-being. So guess what? It's important that throughout our school community, everybody can feel okay. In fact, everyone can feel more than okay. Everyone can flourish. You know, everyone can be seen, uh, be heard, be known and belong. So it's it's all or none, I think. Yeah. Um, Matthew, I totally agree with all those things that you just said. Uh, now, you mentioned before when Tamara asked for something that has gone right in schools or has worked well, that you've got plenty of failures as well. And I think we can learn a lot from failures, right? So um, we like to tell our listeners about some of these failures to show that, you know, even experts can, you know, try things that, that don't work, but we can learn from that and we can share that wisdom with others. So is there something that you'd like to tell our listeners not to waste their time on because it doesn't work? You've tried it? <laughs> well, I, I think I can answer the first part of the question, but I don't know if it would lead to me answering the second part. So I, I don't think what I'm going to talk about here is something people shouldn't waste their time on. I think... We just need to be more culturally savvy and culturally wise as leaders. So in my last school, I, I think I tried to move too quickly and too loudly in terms of LGBTQ plus inclusivity, kind of thinking that I know what's right. I know lots of the kids in my school will really benefit from this. So I'm just going to march ahead. And I think what I found out was that because of how complex the socio-cultural context was, um, I needed to be totally cognizant of and alert to and attuned to that in my efforts to make the school a more LGBTQ plus inclusive place, right? So um, I think I, I did learn that by going too quickly and too loudly, uh, one can almost put at risk the very people you're trying to benefit. Um, one of the people I trust and respect most in the queer community in Amman said to me one day that, um, Matthew, you've got to realise that you're going to go, right? You'll go at some point. So you're coming in as this warrior wanting to change Jordanian society. And then at some point at the end of this or next or the following contract, you're going to go. 
And what will you then have done that's sustainable for the trans kid in Ma'an or the queer kid in Mafrak who will be there forever? And if the spotlight has been shone on their identities without the protection there to ensure that they're going to be okay in the long run, then I've caused more harm than good. So I think um, as more and more schools in quite complex sociocultural and religious contexts uh, realize they've got to wrestle with DEIJ, um, I think on the one hand, they can't just uh, pick and choose from the different identities and characteristics that they want to protect, right? You can't say, well, I, I really embrace DIJ and I'm going to focus exclusively on race because, you know, as I said earlier, it's the, the intersectionality at its core is something we need to respect and understand, right? But we also um, mustn't just ride in, you know, loudly and um, with some big spotlight and fanfare um, and say, we're here to save the queer kids of this country, you know, because that's going to do more harm than good as well. So I think what I hope schools are doing in regions such as the Middle East and, and elsewhere around the world where things are quite complex in that regard, I hope they're saying, look, we've got to do this, right? We've seriously got to do this, because if we don't do this, then how can every child matter? How can we really claim to be an inclusive environment? But we've got to do this in a way that happens without fanfare um, and without some big spotlight, such that we can affect almost uh, disruptive uh, subterfuge um, and make things better for those kids without everyone thinking that that's what we're trying to do. Um, so I think that's what I've uh, learned most. And I'd love to go back and maybe retread that road um, again. Yeah, well, I think there's there's definitely lessons learned there, right? Don't go too hard too fast without the right level of support or thinking about how things are going to be sustainable if key people are no longer there, like you say. So uh, I think that's something that everyone can learn from because it's often, you know, I, I find the same myself. I get impatient. I can see what's wrong with the world. I want to make a change. But you've got to bring people along on the journey and make sure it's sustainable after you've gone. And you've got to understand culture. And I think in the international school sector for too long, as leaders, as teachers, we haven't fully understood uh, our host culture or the kind of rich cauldron, the, the kind of tapestry of multiple cultures um, that make our school community. And I think we need to understand culture in every decision we, we take and make. Yeah, absolutely. That makes, it's, it sounds so simple, but sometimes the, the simplest things are the most complex to actually bring along and they do take a slow burn you need to be playing the long game it's it's not quick and dirty it it is a long slow change if it's going to be sustainable and so that brings me to my next question i love asking all of our guests this question and we've had such fabulous and different answers uh, what i'm wondering is if you've done your job really well and a school is flourishing everybody's feeling good and functioning well, and every child is seen and heard and valued for who they are. How do you know when you walk into the school? What does that school feel like? I often think this is a bit like when you buy a house. You know, all of us have probably considered buying houses or would wish we could buy houses or have bought houses. Uh, and if you've ever looked for a house, you know within seconds, actually, whether that house is the one you want to buy. 
Uh, and I've gone on tortuous house hunts at various points in my adult life where I've looked at dozens and dozens and dozens. And then I try and weigh up, oh, is it this one or is it that one? But actually, when it, when it's the right house, you know the second you walk in. And how could one define how you know that it's the right house? Really hard, actually. Because sometimes all of the kind of external markers suggest it's not the right house, but you just know. And I think when you walk into a school that puts well-being first, when you walk into a school that really manages to ensure every child can flourish and thrive, you just know, which is not really helpful in answering your question. But I would say also, if all those things are in place and every child really is feeling good and functioning well, then you'll know because everything else will improve also. Your attendance and punctuality, your your student and staff behaviours, your student and staff retention, the academic results and, and outcomes, stakeholder satisfaction, all of the traditional markers and metrics that boards have always turned to, to uh, judge and evaluate leaders, those things will all go up. So I think how do you know? You know because you know. But you also know because all of those traditional metrics will be going up, up and up. I love that answer because both are true. You're going to feel it. You're going to just sense it. It's it's that chemistry. Um, and there will be data to support it. And probably the chemistry is first. You probably want to have that energetic feeling and then look to go, okay, now, what are the numbers that support this? At least that's the way I would do it, Jason. You'd probably do it the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you, you, you do both, right? But um, like you said, Tamara, if you're just walking into a school and you don't have the data, it's often, yeah, it's it's the vibe, as we'd say here in Australia, from a, uh, a iconic Australian movie. It's just the vibe. Well, I have absolutely loved having this conversation with you, Matthew, and I think we could probably go on for hours, which we will to be continued at the Thrive Conference. I hope that all our listeners will uh, take a peek for that and, and come and see us both. Maybe we'll convince Jason to, to join us in Belgium. We know that we love to remind our guests that not only can you listen to us if you're listening, but you can also watch us on the Flourish DX YouTube channel. And we are able to be connected with on LinkedIn. Jason and I both use LinkedIn and clearly Matthew and I met there. So if anybody has questions or wants to know more about the Mona Lisa effect or data, feel free to reach out to any of us on LinkedIn. And that is it for today. Before I wrap up entirely, I want to say, Matthew, is there anything else that we didn't get to talk about that you were just dying to mention? I think there were just a couple of things very, very quickly. Firstly, if, if people do want to come and engage with the Thrive Conference, then go to thrive2023.org. And that's how you can find out all about it. Um, I suppose just a little plug as well. You talked about a podcast uh, that you've listened to where I was talking to educators at Gems Founders, right? The podcast of which I'm proudest is one I recorded with my trans son uh, about six months ago. Um, where he and I spent about five hours talking and I distilled it down into five 20-minute episodes where we explore gender and sexuality in a world beyond both. So it's a story of unconditional love and how my, my son Jack hasn't always experienced that, but when he does, he truly thrives. So you can see here Jack and me on all good podcasting platforms. So that's what I wanted to share, but it's been so lovely to speak with you both today. Thank you so much. And just to be clear, Matthew, the title is Jack and Me. Is that the title of the podcast? 
Yep, Jack and me. And it's essentially him him talking to listeners from across the world. And we've had listeners from over 40 countries, including some countries you really wouldn't expect. So, yeah, that's up there. It's essentially a, an ethnographic documentary about an actual trans voice. And we don't often hear from actual trans voices these days about the things that affect their lives. Excellent. Well, I'm certainly going to listen to that. I'm Side note, my best friend is the head of the world's transgender health association. And so this is a world that I'm very familiar with. And I'm always trying to throw her resources that come from this side of the gurney. Uh, so we've gone full circle from whole school well-being to, and yet it's not full circle at all because it's all part of who we are in our story. And so thank you for listening. And until our next episode, keep flourishing at school and in life. You've been listening to the Flourishing at School podcast. To stay up to date with the latest on whole school mental health, follow Flourish DX School on LinkedIn and subscribe to the Flourishing at School podcast at www.flourishingatschool.com.